All right, how do you do? My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. First and foremost, I must say that the Kickstarter for the book, I See Lincoln's Underpants, is a smash hit. So if you have supported, thank you very much. If you have not supported, it is open and up until the morning of April 1st. So there's still a little bit of time left. We have some stretch goals. You might get us to one of those. If not, you know what? I'm just so happy that you're listening and maybe somewhere down the road you can find the book and read it and enjoy it because that's why I wrote it. It's not going to physically be in the world until later on this year, probably the the fall. Um, But in the meantime, we'll be having plenty of fun here on the podcast. This episode features the stories of Tetsuya Fujita, a.k.a. Ted Fujita, a.k.a. Mr. Tornado, which is a super cool nickname. Also, this episode features the story of Charles Hatfield, a noted rainmaker. And I should point out that this uh, story was suggested... It was a great suggestion um, by one of our Patreon folks, uh, a lady named Jessica, who I actually knew in high school and who is a geologist. And so, you know, stumbled upon this really great story. And I really appreciate the share. And it was fun to learn about. So let's get started. And let me introduce you to Ted Fujita. The weather once saved Tetsuya Fujita's life. On the morning of August 9, 1945, an American bomber set out on a mission to drop the second of two atomic bombs that the American government would unleash upon the citizens of Japan. The original target for that day was a site near the Kokura Railway. It was three miles from Fujita's home. Because of thick cloud cover, made worse by smoke from nearby fires, the crew of the airplane could not locate their target. At the last minute, they abandoned the original plan and instead dropped the terrible weapon on the city of Nagasaki, just three days after they had stunned the world by dropping the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. While the clouds were a fortunate blessing for Tetsuya Fujita and helped to spare his life, others were not so lucky. The bomb devastated Nagasaki. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen and while it would hasten the end of World War II, the human costs of the weapon were immense. The sadness, pain, and suffering the weapon caused were nearly incomprehensible. But Tetsuya would soon set out to comprehend what had happened. And much, much later, he would use all of his new understanding from the damage to help protect his fellow humans from the most damaging and unpredictable thing on Earth, and the very thing that might have spared his own life, the weather. When he was a kid, Tetsuya took it upon himself to learn astronomy so he could better understand ocean tides. While he was curious about the world, this was actually for his own safety because he liked to dig for clams, and if he misjudged the ocean's tides while doing it, he could wind up stranded on a tidal island. His family was used to him getting into questionable predicaments, though. Once, when a major storm hit his part of Japan, his panicked father found him on the roof of their home. Tetsuya was mesmerized by the power of the weather system and wondered why it moved the way that it did. Not long after, as a young man, he studied engineering, and then, thanks to his great intellect and dedication to learning, he became a teaching assistant at the university. 
Throughout his studies and teaching in the engineering field, he spent nearly all of his free time thinking about his real passion, the weather. While others might find hobbies in sports and outdoors or books or art, Tatsuya was not like most people. Meteorology was his hobby, his passion, his true love. But when the bomb fell on Nagasaki, everything changed. The entire country of Japan went into recovery in the time following the war. The economy shrank, money became tight, and enrollments in the schools slowed down. Someone that Tetsuya admired gave him advice. His observational nature would be perfect for analyzing the blast site to understand precisely what had happened. And soon enough, he was in Nagasaki, combing through the rubble, analyzing burn marks, calculating angles, and tracing the patterns of the damage. To the amazement of many, he was able to calculate exactly where the bomb had come from, at what altitude it exploded, and he also made important observations about the power of air and motion caused by the explosion. With few prospects to follow his passion in post-war Japan, he sent some of his research and writings to Horace Byers, a meteorologist at the University of Chicago. Horace was leading a project the American government called the Thunderstorm Project. And the goal of the Thunderstorm Project was to use new technology like airplanes and satellites to better understand and more accurately predict the weather. This was exactly the kind of thing that Tetsuya Fujita could sink his teeth into. In the early 1950s, he accepted an invitation from Byers to join the meteorology department at University of Chicago, and he began playing a growing role in the Thunderstorm Project. When he became an American citizen, he added the middle name Theodore and went by Ted amongst many of his new American colleagues. In 1957, something big happened. A tornado. Stop! Excuse me, what? You can't, you can't say that. I can't say tornado. Stop! Why can't I say that? It freaks people out. We've decided it's better if we don't even say it. It's unnecessary panic. Well, what do you say then? Uh, nothing really. Hmm. Can I say whirly gig? No. Twirly whirly? No. Spinny windy? No. Critical cyclonial cloud? No. Dorothy House Heister? No. Oh. Ah, Anna Jones? Absolutely not. Okay, can I just call it a tornado? No? Let me check on that. All right, you get back to me. I'm going to keep going. Tornadoes. <clears throat> Tornadoes were once so mysterious and so panic-inducing that at various times, people including officials at the Weather Bureau, tried to limit the actual saying of the word. But refusing to acknowledge something doesn't make it go away. And it's not like conjuring up a monster by speaking its name. That bad weather is coming whether you like it or not. And whether you say tornado or not... Oh, tornado, no. Okay, okay. So, this tornado in 1957 did some serious damage in Fargo, North Dakota. And just as he had done in Nagasaki... Ted Fujita took his analytical mind to the disaster site. He analyzed the area down to the smallest detail. And most importantly, he met with any witnesses that he could find. Some people thought he was mad when he collected hundreds of photos people had taken of the damage. 
by mapping these images with the own observations that he made of damage to the structures, trees, and even the earth itself, he was able to learn a tremendous amount about the power of the tornado. He began to form theories about the ways that the air behaved, about mysterious multi-tornado systems, and even invisible downbursts of air that were as damaging as the tornadoes themselves, but nowhere near as visible, so even more mysterious. Many people didn't believe what he was proposing, but Ted never faltered. He observed, he learned, he understood more and more and more and worked to prove what he saw to other people. Over the years, more tornadoes inevitably came, and though Ted was sad to see the destruction, each one offered more chance at analysis, more knowledge, and the possibility of greater understanding. Ted realized that certain storms, just like bombs dropped during wartime, were more powerful than others. And if the worst circumstances lined up, a storm could become devastatingly destructive in a heartbeat. And the more he learned, the more he could do to help people stay safe when tornadoes became a possibility. He knew what made the perfect storm. But it wasn't just about tornadoes in the Midwest. In 1975, he was brought in to analyze a plane crash near New York. He realized that the plane flying through a storm system was caught by a downburst of air from the powerful storm. Again, an invisible thing, but something his research could prove. Though many other scientists doubted him, the airlines decided to listen to his advice. Soon, airports across the country installed Doppler radars to track storm systems, and it became common to divert flights safely around those storms. Between this and the knowledge that he gave the world through his groundbreaking tornado research, Ted Fujita saved countless lives and taught subsequent generations to do the same. His impact is impossible to calculate, though, if anyone could calculate it, it would probably be Tetsuya Ted Fujita himself, because, well, he seemed to be able to calculate anything that stumped everyone else. He died in 1998, and beyond all of the research, newly trained meteorologists, and lives saved, he lives on through the Fujita scale. Perhaps you've heard a tornado referred to as an F1, an F2, an F3, an F4, or even the most powerful, the F5. Those are very specific ratings of tornadic power that Ted defined through his research. And that F in each rating stands for Fujita, which is why it's called the Fujita scale. Today, it's been slightly modified and is now known as the Enhanced Fujita scale. So tornadoes are often categorized as an EF1, EF2, and so forth. We're lucky these days to have a lot of information and technology to keep us safe from tornadoes. And in a big way, you can thank that young engineer from Japan for that. Okay, I just checked and no, you can't say tornado. Oh, you're back. Uh, well, look, I hate to break it to you, but I've been talking about tornadoes this whole time. But the rules! Yeah, trying to control what people say is not very cool. So I'm gonna break your rule. Here I go. Tornado, 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 tornado. Customers are rushing to your store. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a storytime podcast with your littles? Something that has some great storytelling and maybe some conversation about it? Look no further. With Storytime with Philip and Mommy, my little guy Philip and I sit down every single day and read a story together. And we, of course, want you to join us. Grab your copy of the book, sit down, let's read it, and let's talk about it. We'll learn new words, we'll learn new ideas, and then we'll learn how we can use those stories in our lives. It's a lot of fun. Classics like Little Golden Books or Bernstein Bears, all the way up through the newest phenomenons like Bluey. We talk about them and we have a lot of laughs. It's a great time and we hope that you can come and join us. So please look for us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Storytime with Philip and Mommy. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. I'm going to turn it over to Henry Middleton for his submission of You Have 30 Seconds. Henry. My name is Henry, and I live in Utah. Ernest Shackleton was born in 1874, and this explorer is most famously remembered for his expedition in the 1914s through 1916, as he and a crew of 28 men set sail on the Endurance, trying to cross the Antarctic continent. Disaster struck. The ship sunk in the pack ice. He and his men had to make the journey of 2,000 miles to the nearest civilization. Amazingly, all of them survived. Henry, that was awesome. And I know that you sent that about a year ago. So thank you for your patience. And thanks to everyone who sent You Have 30 Seconds for their patience. But I was excited to use this, Henry, because it's a current event now. They found the ship. I'm sure that is not news to you, but it is exciting. And if there's anyone else out there who would like to learn more, there are lots of stories right now floating around about floating around on a boat, floating around about the discovery, the exciting discovery of Ernest Shackleton's ship. How cool is that? It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, yes, that's right. It's quiz time, and these are weather questions. In 1588, King Philip II of Spain sent a fleet of ships known as the Spanish Armada to the coast of England in an act of war. However, the so-called Invincible Armada was repelled by what force of nature? Queen Elizabeth of England, perhaps you've heard of her, she credited much of the naval victory to the wind. When the Spanish Armada anchored offshore, a violent windstorm began and churned the seas around them. The British took advantage by lighting eight of their own empty ships on fire and letting the wind carry them towards the Spanish Armada. 
The ships which escaped had to cut their anchor lines and the wind blew them back home. Question number two. The two most common scales used to measure temperature are known as Fahrenheit and Celsius. Both are named after real people. Do you know which one came first? In 1724, a German man named Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit proposed his scale to measure temperature. Two decades later, in 1742, Anders Celsius proposed a temperature scale of his own, which also bears his name. Okay, here it is. This is the third and final question. On April 26, 1884, in Anderson County, Kansas, a farmer, identified as A.A. Adams, that's triple A, made tornado history when he became the first person to do what with a tornado? Well, A.A. Adams, old triple A himself, had a big, boxy, cumbersome camera, and he caught the very first photographic image of a tornado in known history. It was so momentous that he actually reprinted it and sold hundreds of copies. Luckily, he nor anyone else were injured as the tornado mostly meandered through farmland and left nearby towns unscathed. If you're going to have a city, you are going to need water. There are other things you're going to need too, obviously, but water is as essential as it gets. I mean, we all know that, water's life, right? But on the west coast of the American continent, as with many other places in the world, fresh water to support a human population can be hard to come by. It's been that way for a long time, and through the years, many different attempts at boosting rainfall or saving water supplies have been made at many different times. Back in 1915, one city that needed water really, really badly was San Diego, California. For four years prior, rain fell at record lows. I mean, it almost didn't fall at all. Residents were alarmed because the drought had left the growing city and its surrounding areas with almost no new fresh water. Just a few years before, the city had worked to create a series of reservoirs throughout the area to collect and hold each and every drop of rain that they could after it fell around the area. When the reservoirs were full, it was a beautiful sight. As the four dry years passed, though, the huge bodies of water, which once held billions of gallons, grew nearly as empty as a pair of dirty socks on your floor. You should put those in the hamper, by the way. As the wide, wet water collectors menacingly crept closer to empty, the city council grew very worried about what to do. With no water, how are the people of San Diego going to brush their teeth? With all due respect, I feel like we have bigger problems than dirty teeth. Actually, we're not even sure how many people in this time or place brush their teeth with much regularity, but that's beside the point. The low water supply remained a high concern. The highest concern, perhaps, which is why the city council decided to listen to what a man named Charles Hatfield had to say. Charles Hatfield was born in Kansas in 1875, which was a place where occasional periods of dryness created plenty of similar problems. For the first part of his adult life, he was a sewing machine salesman. But then he became fascinated with something called 
pluviculture. It would become his profession by the early 1900s. He called himself a moisture accelerator, but most people of the time would have called him a rainmaker. Now throughout the years and throughout the world, there have been people known as rainmakers. With secrets, supposed magic, or science and chemistry, these people claimed to be able to open up the skies and fill the rivers with much needed rainwater. Many were hucksters, who probably just knew what to look for in weather changes. On their hunches, they would show up right before an unexpected storm and promise desperate people in the area that they could make it rain for money. Make it rain! Of course, the rain would have rained had the huckster shown up or not. But if his gamble was right, he got paid and off he went. Other rainmakers worked with a bit more evidence. Throughout the ages, observations have been made about battles seeming to cause rain. From the American Civil War, there were many journal entries and other observations that seemed to connect disruptive power of artillery, lingering black powder smoke, and floating debris of a heated contest to rainstorms in the days that followed. Did the cannon fire shake the clouds loose? Did the particles floating around give moisture in the atmosphere something to collect on until it grew too heavy and fell back down to earth as rain? Or was it just going to rain anyway? No one was completely sure. Charles Hatfield was confident, though, and he told the San Diego City Council that for the reasonable sum of $10,000, he would fill the nearby Morena Dam Reservoir to the tippy-top. He promised more water than they could imagine. I don't know. I can imagine an awful lot. You'll get it. Says the fly-by-night rainmaker. <clears throat> I am a moisture accelerator, and look, if you'd like to see my resume, you will see successful rains on cotton fields in Texas, moisture accelerations in Alaska, and even 18 inches of rain for your northern neighbors in Los Angeles. Yeah, we know. So what do you have to lose? Let me set up my signature secret stinky mix of chemicals, and if I bring the rain, you pay me 10,000 smackers. If I don't bring the rain, off I go with my packers. What? That doesn't make any sense. I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll leave. I was... Try. I was going for a rhyme. It took a chance, okay? No. Look, let me put it this way. No rain. I disappear. You owe me nothing. So what do you say? Yeah, what do we have to lose? Well, this sounds great. I see no need for a contract. Let me get to work. Tally-ho! This was late December of 1915. By New Year's of 1916, Charles and his brother had built a wooden tower 20 feet high and began mixing Hatfield's secret stinky blend. No one is sure what he was mixing up there, but one ingredient that seems to be a common guess was, at the time, called salammoniac. Today, it's known as ammonium chloride, and it would have been very easy to get because blacksmiths use the powder when making objects from iron. It also burns at a low temperature and creates a cloud-like smoke that maybe could have given water vapor something to collect on. But there was more, because most witnesses recall an awful smell surrounding the tower as he burned his pungent potion. Gross, what is that smell? It smells like duck feet after walking through rotten milk. No, no, it's more like you took a bath in your jeans in a horse trough that had been used all day and then was filled with mushroom sauce and maybe some, uh, like, Alfredo? So the horse trough is full of Alfredo sauce that's been in the sun all day? Yeah, that's it. People didn't agree on what it actually smelled like, but a very common description was as if a Limburger cheese factory had exploded. 
Whether the cheesy stench worked or Mother Nature just took mercy on the area, fortunes changed. The rain started showing up. Okay, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then, uh, yeah, we want to go ahead and light this up. Uh, yeah. Ammonium chloride for the sky. San Charles, 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 it's What? Yeah, look, lots. Well, I'll be dipsy-doodled. Brother, we are about to get paid. Was Charles Hatfield right? He was worse than right. He was wrong. It started raining all right, but the problem was that it didn't stop. Over one five-day period in January of 1916, 17 inches of rain flooded the area. At first, people were delighted. It was an incredible amount of rain, which was just what they wanted. But you've got to be careful what you wish for. Soon, floods damaged homes and railroad lines, swept away livestock, and even took the lives of some people. But Hatfield was not done. I said I'd fill the reservoir, and that's what I'm gonna do because I am a moisture accelerator. The best. What Hatfield had failed to recognize was that the dams built to hold the water in the series of reservoirs might not have been able to withstand the pressure of the amount of rain that he was maybe or maybe not putting in them. So despite the floods and standing in the often falling rain, he made more secret stinky smoke and the rain kept falling. January of 1916 was the rainiest month ever in San Diego history. Was it because of Charles Hatfield, or was Charles Hatfield just observationally gifted and or very lucky? Well, we don't know for certain, but the people of San Diego considered paying him to stop. Maybe they should have. January 27th was a bad day. The Lower Otay Reservoir Dam, which was pretty close to the city, could not hold back the growing body of collected rainwater any longer. It burst and the wall of water it unleashed tore trees from the earth, rocked homes from their foundations. It was a disaster. But up on his tower miles away, Charles Hatfield didn't really realize the severity of what had happened. Figuring his work done, he made his way to the city to talk to the council about his $10,000 paycheck. Are you kidding me, Charles? If we pay you, we're going to get sued by every city resident who lost everything in the flood that you caused. But I filled the reservoir. Okay, tell you what. We'll pay you $10,000 if you publicly take credit for the flood. You mean the one that just destroyed homes and crops and livestock and people's lives? Yeah, that's the one. But then they'll sue me. Yeah, probably. No, no, I don't like that. And we had a deal. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did did we sign a contract? Because I don't think we did. So it's like that, huh? Oh, it's like that. So go on. Yeah, go on. Get. Go on and get. And off Charles Hatfield trudged through the soggy streets of San Diego. In his mind, he brought the rain he agreed to bring. And he'd try for years to get the money that he was promised. But it never came. Other jobs did. He made rain in other places at other times, but none were as historic as Hatfield's flood of 1916. 
If we can take anything away from this moment in time, it might be two things. You should probably sign a contract if there's a lot on the line. But more importantly, be careful what you wish for. All San Diego ever really wanted was a little rain. Whether Charles Hatfield had anything to do with it or not, they got way more than they bargained for. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Episode 66. It's almost in the books. Got a little bit more to do. Uh, I've got some Patreon people to thank and also a special uh, guest contribution song at the end. So stick around. I'm excited about that. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. I'm so glad that you listen. And I'm so glad that William Johnson in Woburn, Massachusetts is a fan. Thank you for your Patreon support, William. Ooh, and I need to send a very special thank you and hello to Emily Thompson as well. Emily, I'm so glad that you are out there and I love making the show for you and everyone else. And I'm glad you enjoy it. And, uh, oh, in Concord, North Carolina, I need to say hello to someone named Giacomo. Giacomo, thanks for the note. That was really cool. It was great to hear from you. Thank you very much. And Sarah and Judah in Spring Hill, Tennessee, hello to you from Louisville, Kentucky. I understand. I think you might have some family right across the river um, or some connection to New Albany. So hello from Louisville. Uh, Also, oh, a late happy birthday to Gideon Maki. Gideon, hope it was great. Another year around the sun. That's awesome. Glad you did it. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening right now. Elias, Maggie, and Maddox, hello to you as well. Thank you for your support. I love it. Augie and Eva in Arlington, Virginia. What a cool place. And actually was like in the last episode, right? The Samuel Tucker episode. So hello to you, Augie and Eva. Thank you. Oh, and Zachary, Donovan, and Nicholas in Oxnard, California. Hello to the whole gang. Thank you for your support. I have two birthdays also, a late birthday for Omar, whose uh, birthday was on March 18th from Arlington, Massachusetts. Happy birthday, Omar. Hope it was a good one. And all the way across the ocean in Cambridgeshire, England. Maybe you say Cambridgeshire. I don't know. Cambridgeshire. Anyway, doesn't matter. Jonas Warren, happy birthday on April 4th. It's just like right around the corner. It should be this week. So glad that you are out there too. Thanks for listening to everyone. Now, a special treat. Uh, There is a listener um, who sent me a lovely note and we had some interaction. Her name is Margot McSweeney. And she is an awesome banjo and fiddle player. Uh, I love I love hearing young folks play music, and especially, you know, traditional bluegrass and fiddle, uh, old time music, um, all that sort of variety, uh, is near and dear to my heart. So it was really cool to hear Margot play, uh, and it's great. So I wanted to share it with you. Here's a she actually sent me a couple pieces, so I might have her later on. But here's Margot. Take it away, Margot, and thanks for listening. My name is Mick. Bye bye. This song is called Sourwood Mountain. Uh-huh.